So again, it's uh, good to be back with everyone and to uh, also uh, see a number of familiar faces. Each day, starting with today and then for the next three days, we'll have a talk, uh, call it a Dharma talk or a Dhamma talk, to give us some uh, orientation, hopefully some energy and inspiration. And a few words in guidance, as it were, towards how to be with a talk. Uh, the suggestion is especially to take this as part of your practice. And so it can be helpful to have a way of being present as you listen to the talks. Some people like to be aware of their bodies, at least some. It's fine to take uh, notes if that is a way that works well for you in terms of uh, tracking uh, themes and, and ideas. But the encouragement is especially to listen uh, and let it penetrate at a deep level, not to stay too much at a more conceptual level. And I will, in giving the talk this evening, intend to stay present myself, to be present with my body, with my heart, and take that as a practice as I give the talk. So I want to explore this late afternoon Pacific time. It's already evening and dark for many of us who are, are east of where I am. I want to explore the larger theme of the retreat, which we called Embracing the Dark, Inviting the Light, the themes of this winter solstice. As Tuari said, it's a very uh, special time. It's, uh, she used the word, magical. Um, it's a time of greatest darkness and then the, uh, then the coming of the light. There's a, a poem which I like, and Brian, we can go to the first poem. Uh, from John Updike, from a, from a poem called uh, January. The days are short, the sun a spark, hung thin between the dark and dark. So it's very much in the spirit of what Tuari was saying. We're in between the dark and the dark. No way around it. And uh, let's, uh, now Brian, we want to... Uh, just drop the poem now. I'll give you a cue when we go to the next one. So in virtually every culture, there's some kind of acknowledgement, you know, cultures of the Northern Hemisphere, some acknowledgement of the solstice. Uh, often there's a sense of uh, purification, of cleaning, of uh, a kind of rebirth that occurs. You know, we're, and many of us are familiar with the holidays of Hanukkah or Christmas or Kwanzaa, 
And but really, we can find in all indigenous cultures and cultures around the world something that acknowledges the mystery of the greatest darkness and the coming of the light and brings that theme into its meaning for our ongoing lives. And so, for example, in the uh, Zuni and Hopi people of the uh, southwest of the U.S., the holiday is called Soyal, and it's held on the shortest day of the year. Through ceremony, they bring the sun back from its, what they call its winter slumber. It begins another cycle of the wheel of the year. It's also taken as a time of purification. The, uh, the kivas, many of you know, the underground sacred chambers are opened up at the time of the solstice. In Africa, in Mali, there's uh, a winter solstice ceremony called uh, Goru for, by the uh, Dogon of Mali. It's the time there of the last harvest, and it's a ritual celebration of actually the arrival of humanity through the ark that comes with the sky gods. You know, in Neolithic times, the solstice was so central. Many of you may know that uh, Stonehenge and some of the other rock formations uh, in what we now call uh, Great Britain were organized around the uh, winter solstice. In Stonehenge, the uh, stones are organized so they point towards the sunset at the time of the winter solstice. Hanukkah in the Jewish tradition is also a holiday about the miracle of the light being there when there was supposedly only enough for one night, and yet it lasted for eight nights, eight days and nights. And so the holiday is in many ways about welcoming the miracle of light when we thought that there was only darkness. And we could go on and see these different uh, ways of recognizing that around the world. The um, Christian Advent time is, is also a waiting for the light of the world to come again. And in some of the uh, Celtic roots of Advent, there was... Uh, there were four weeks. The first week was the advent of the minerals, the stones and the mountains. The second, the plants, everything growing. The third, the animals. And the fourth was the advent of the angels in the uh, ancient, ancient uh, Celtic ceremonies. In China, there was a ceremony called uh, Dongji, which is for the uh, extreme of winter. Very important ceremony through China, through uh, Korea. And it's uh, 
related to the understanding of the balance of of the light and the dark and the um, special relation to the I Ching symbol called returning and often a time for the family to come together and a sense of the reunion with the with the sun and there were special foods used particularly a form of rice that symbolized that kind of reunion and so in uh, Western culture, I think it's different with the pandemic, but in Western culture, things are often a little bit crazed and busy. I think for many of us right now, we don't have the usual busyness of the, uh, of the holiday time and New Year's where things seem just really, really out there, busy, doing all sorts of things. I know that in my kind of extended family, we're probably not going to get together. My my niece, Cezanne, uh, is pregnant and scheduled to have a child on February 1st. And it's important to keep her safe, right? And to really not have uh, um, extended gatherings. And so we're making the choice at this time to have a retreat, to go into our own silence and stillness to see what's there in our minds and bodies and to see what might come next, to see where our hearts are, where our intuitions are. We're choosing in a way to have a quiet time, you know, even as we recognize, as Oren said, that there's um, a world in crisis in multiple ways. Some of my friends talk, maybe you do too, about the multiple pandemics. We have the crisis of the pandemic, the crisis of continuing uh, racial injustice, economic injustice, and economic uh, deprivation. Of course, the climate emergency, you know, the dangers of a, a weakening democracy, and we could go on, international instability and so forth. And we we, um, we recognize that as we also go on retreat, that actually to be useful to the world, we need to have balance that comes from these cycles of withdrawal and return. The British historian Arnold Toynbee said that the genesis of cultural creativity is being involved with cycles of withdrawal and return. Very, very crucial. And you can see, you can see how that appears for the lives of so many people. You know, and I've said something I've studied in the lives of uh, um, particularly people like Gandhi or King, you know, uh, they, they always had cycles of withdrawal and return. And yet we are also committed to many of us to really have our practice be connected with responding to the needs of the world. And so we find refuge in silence and stillness 
we go into this time. It's something for me, I think I've done about 30 retreats at this time. It's very special to very familiar this time of year. So helpful to go into the retreat. It's really like being with the earth to see what's happening. And so we find a good practice place. I'm thinking of the, uh, the, some of you know, the text where the Buddha gives the instructions for mindfulness for our, our practice. He says, go to the forest, find an empty hut, find solitude. One sets one's body erect and establishes mindfulness in front, ever mindful, one breathes in, ever mindful, one breathes out. And so we, we have that, uh, we can have that sense of your home. That's your empty hut. So we're all in our empty huts right now. Our, our, you know, we're on Zoom, which is like our empty, empty space where we get to practice. And so we find that place of uh, silence and stability. And we, uh, we are like the earth, really. That is... Uh, slowing down, that has slowed down. And we find a way to um, slow down and simply see what's there, see what's there in our experience. Bring our awareness, as we'll do in these next days, over and over again, what's present right now, what's there. But to do so, we need to have some degree of stability to, you know, as Tuari was guiding us, we need to have some stability to be able to track what's there. So we develop um, further concentration. We develop the capacity to see what's there. And we also want to bring in compassion and kindness, which we'll bring in every day in our loving kindness practice to really link that with our mindfulness. Uh, you know, my, uh, my dear friend and colleague, Sylvia Borstein has a wonderful way of summarizing our practice. May I meet each moment fully. May I meet each moment as a friend. May I meet each moment fully. May I meet each moment as a friend. And out of our practice comes the capacity for clear seeing, for what the uh, late British teacher, Rob Berbea, calls seeing that frees. That's the aim of our practice. We want to develop seeing that frees clear seeing into our habits, into the deeper places in our heart. And then out of that comes the possibility of moment to moment being able to be responsive wisely to what happens rather than being reactive. There's a wonderful uh, Chinese Zen teacher named uh, Yunmen, and he was once asked by his students, what is the highest and most profound teaching of all the Buddhas and all the ancestors? And one might have expected him to give a deeply metaphysical answer about the interpenetration of inside and outside as we see through the lack of uh, division between all beings and all things, and we have this brilliant radiating light that comes from inside into the interpenetrating cosmos. Might have said that, but he didn't. Might have given some other answer, but what he said was, 
What is the highest teaching? Appropriate response. That's it. That's what we're looking for. Appropriate response moment by moment. That's the horizon, the, the North Star of our practice. And so we are here and we are able to go into the dark. So Brian, let's skip the next one and go to the one beyond that. This is a poem by Wendell Berry. To go into the dark with a light is to know the light. To know the dark, go dark. Go without sight and find that the dark too blooms and sings and is traveled by dark feet and dark wings. So what I want to do uh, in the rest of the talk is to explore some of the different meanings of going into the dark, of embracing the darkness and inviting the light. And I'll look at darkness in terms of uh, really five metaphors or five ways of relating to the dark. The first is the darkness as stopping, like the earth. We stop and become still. Second is maybe a more familiar sense of darkness, darkness as the difficult. We learn how to be with the difficult, crucial part of our practice. Third, we go into the darkness of not knowing, being with mystery, being with maybe what's unresolved in our life. That's the third sense of going into the darkness. And the fourth is that darkness is generative and fertile, creative and uh, dynamic, that something beautiful and powerful comes when we're able to be with the darkness. And then the last is the darkness as luminous, as actually both containing light and opening up to the light, opening up to different aspects of light. And so you can see with this, is again related to what Tuare was saying, that the meanings of darkness are varied. We often are conditioned to think of dark as simply meaning negative, but here we're really wanting to be with the dark and see how there are both difficult or challenging aspects and beautiful, creative, generative aspects of the dark. And so in that way, we're going against the tendency sometimes to see uh, the dark primarily as negative. That's certainly echoed in some of the ways we often talk or the long historical negativity associated with people who have uh, darker skin. Or just to use the language in that way and to um, often not want to go into some of the aspects of the dark, you know, whether, whether the not wanting to be with not knowing or with the difficult. And so we're really, um, we're really doing it in a different way. And again, this is something we can see individually and also very much culturally and socially, that socially we often don't want to go into what's uh, some aspects of the dark, into what's particularly what's difficult. 
particularly from the past. So I'll bring out that theme more as we, as we go on. So the first sense of darkness is darkness as stopping, as going into stillness. And here again, we, we can be very much like the earth. This is from a, a scientific account of actually what's happening now. Photosynthesis slows, respiration slows, growth stops. This is the, what's going on for the plants. Plants see, uh, use winter dormancy to keep their houses in order. This dormancy is much more than a period of suspending animation. It's part survival mechanism, part housekeeping uh, exercise, all meant to help plants gear up for warmer days ahead. So seeds lie dormant, metabolizing at low levels, waiting for spring. And so again, this is the invitation for us. Can we, can we stop? Can we do less in these four days where you have choices, maybe to if it's possible, let aside uh, email for these days, if that can work for you, to go on the side of, of less, being less, less busy. You know, it's almost like the challenge for so many of us, I think probably for many people even during the pandemic, is this, this quality of busyness, and we're letting go of that to some extent as much as we can. So we stop, we anchor the mind and our sense of presence in the body and the breath. We invite the, the mind to be less busy. You know, we'll go further into the instructions building on what Tuere gave us uh, tomorrow morning, but we'll see the ways in which we use the breath and the continual return to the breath or whatever else our main focus is as a way to steady the mind, to develop what's called samadhi more, the gathering of our being, becoming less distracted, and doing so in a way that combines uh, a kind of firmness of mind with relaxation. The key to that Focusing and gathering, as we'll look at again more tomorrow morning, is relaxation. And so we go into the silence and stillness. And in a way, what we open to is this very beautiful quality of faith. It's really a kind of refuge. We really take refuge in the organic unfolding of our own being. We gain increasing trust as we practice that if I stay with my own process, it will open up to wisdom and compassion and to skillful action. And as we practice more and more, we, we just, we trust in these four days, we'll be inviting you to trust in the unfolding of your practice, whatever is occurring. Sometimes what will occur, we won't like, sometimes we'll like it, but there's a kind of invitation to trust in the unfolding of our practice and ask, you know, uh, what's an appropriate response moment by moment? If there's something challenging or difficult, what's an appropriate response? 
And as we do that, we may access, as I know all of us have accessed at times, uh, deeper parts of our being. You know, our, our care, our love, our kindness, our compassion, our wisdom. There's a beautiful passage uh, from the Catholic contemplative Thomas Merton. Many of you know his life and work. He says, he talks about what he calls the inner self. The inner self, he said, is precisely that self which cannot be tricked or manipulated by anyone. It's like a very shy wild animal that never appears at all whenever an alien presence is at hand and comes out only when all is perfectly peaceful and silence, when it is untroubled and alone. So we, like the earth, we stop in order to be present, to let occur what occurs, to let the natural unfolding of our experience occur. That's the first sense of dark, darkness, really a stopping, being still, being like the earth. And so, yeah, uh, go outside at times, uh, as it were, study the earth. Be like the earth now. Look at how so many, so much is becoming quiet, is shutting down, getting ready for what comes next. The second sense of being with darkness is being with the difficult, being with what is challenging. And this is such a central part of our practice. We learn how to be more skillful with what's challenging and difficult. Of course, this isn't what we signed up for. When I first signed up for practice, I, I read what was in the literature. It said, come for calmness, peace, bliss, understanding, wisdom. How many of you signed up for that? Many of us did. And then, of course, what we get, we get some of that. Uh, that's, that's clear. But we also get other stuff. Has anyone, anyone thought that there was a little too much difficulty coming with your practice, that it should be a little bit different? Anyone had that experience? Okay. And um, I'm not recording your show of hands. If you raise your hand, I, I, will, I will not remember. I'm just trying to get a, a sense. And, um, and so what we learn to do is to be with what's challenging or difficult without being reactive. I would say that this is actually right at the heart of the teachings of the Buddha. This is the center. This is the center of this 2,600-year-old tradition. Be able to be with all of experience without being reactive, without grabbing hold of the pleasant, without pushing away compulsively and automatically, habitually, the unpleasant. In one of the Buddhist teachings called Transcendental Dependent Origination, he says that everything in our practice changes when we have a different relationship to what he calls dukkha, which I like to translate as reactivity, the, the pushing away of the unpleasant, the grabbing hold of the pleasant. We learn to be with 
discomfort. We learn to be with what's unpleasant. And this, again, may go against a lot of how we uh, typically understand practice. So, Brian, let's bring the next, next slide on. This is a cartoon that I like a lot. And this is a cartoon of a, a beginning practitioner. And do we have that slide, Brian? We're we getting there. Here we go. Today, I shall stay in the present moment. Unless the present moment is unpleasant, in which case I will eat a cookie. Okay, so here, there's nothing wrong with eating cookies, but we're inviting ourselves to stay with the unpleasant for a period of time and be, and be able to practice with it. And if you want to reward yourself later with a cookie, that's fine. But you get the, you get the idea. And there's actually a, a core teaching which gets at this, which is probably my favorite teaching of the Buddha. It's called the teaching of the two arrows. And this is, this is all about the centrality of being with what's difficult in a different way. And this was a teaching where the Buddha was with a group of practitioners and he asked them this question. He said, everyone at times has unpleasant experiences. What differentiates a practitioner from a non-practitioner? And they didn't answer his question, so he gave an answer. He said this. He said, everyone at times has unpleasant experiences. And in the text, which is called the, the uh, two arrows or the two darts, maybe we can put this on the uh, homepage. He said, everyone at times has an unpleasant experience. He said, it's like being shot by an arrow. He called this the first arrow. He was talking about physical experiences in the text, but we could generalize and say sometimes we have unpleasant physical experiences. When we sit, we may be uncomfortable. We may sometimes be ill, get sick. We can have injuries. Being human being, we're vulnerable to having physical discomfort at times. We can also have emotional discomfort, difficult emotions difficult thoughts, and so forth. We can be treated unfairly or unjustly by others or by the society. I think this is all part of what the Buddha would call the first arrow. And he said that everyone is shot at times by this first arrow. In that, there's no difference between a non-practitioner and a mature practitioner. The difference is in what happens after the first arrow, as it were, is shot. He said a non-practitioner, which also means us practitioners when we're not practicing, a non-practitioner will tend to shoot a second arrow either at oneself or at others as if that would help. The practitioner learns when the first arrow is present not to shoot the second arrow. So how does that occur? 
I have physical discomfort, I may tense around the physical discomfort. Some forms of chronic pain, now we're told by researchers that as much as 80% of chronic pain may be the reaction to the original pain. And so in that sense, it can be eliminated. And so the first major use of mindfulness in the medical field was by John Kabat-Zinn at University of Massachusetts Medical School, teaching people with chronic pain mindfulness so that they might have some chance of eliminating much of that 80%. 20% still there, but the 80% may be eliminated. I think we know that. Probably we know that more emotionally when we something difficult happens and we shoot a second arrow at ourselves. We blame ourselves, we blame others. We may be in a difficult mood for a day, a week, a month, two years. That's the second arrow. We may do that interpersonally. Someone says something negative to me and I react back instantly with something negative. That's the second arrow. I may receive something unfair or unjust from the society and I may react back and try to uh, cause pain to others. A number of conflicts in the world are two groups of people shooting second arrows at each other. And it's no coincidence that if you look at the work of uh, Gandhi, King, Dorothy Day, other advocates of nonviolence, it's, a ve it's very, very close to this teaching. We have received the unpleasant, the difficult, the painful, the unjust. We will respond wisely, firmly, strongly, but we will not do so in a reactive way. This is the teaching, right? And so it's a very powerful teaching, which you see can, can guide us in many ways with our, in terms of our own inner difficulties, our interpersonal difficulties, and social difficulties. How can I respond fully, not avoid response, but not do so in a reactive way? And it's a, you know, if we kind of summarize it, we can see that the whole teaching could be, and I think this is the core teaching of the whole tradition, is that it's possible moment to moment to be responsive rather than reactive. That's a very simple, ordinary English way of talking about what we're doing. Becoming more responsive rather than, rather than reactive. And so we'll learn different ways of being with what's difficult. Many of us who've been practicing know a number of skillful ways to work with what happens when there's some physical discomfort. And I'll give more detail on this tomorrow morning. When there's physical discomfort, can we be with it? When it's not uh, causing damage, when it's in the workable range, can I just be with and study the unpleasant? Part of what we call the second foundation of mindfulness. It's a big part of our practice. Watch the tendencies to react, to say, this isn't what I signed up for. Can I be with uh, 
the unpleasantness when it manifests physically? Can I watch my reactions when something happens in my meditation during the retreat that I don't like? Maybe when I'm sleepy or when I, my mind gets really obsessed by something that happened two days ago and I want it to stop, but it doesn't stop. Has anyone ha ever had a mind that doesn't stop when you want it to stop? Anyone? Looks like about half the group have raised their hands. And so, uh, yeah, so we, we will learn how to be present more skillfully. And again, a lot of us have been practicing this for quite some time, but this is such a core part of the practice. And I wanted to share one dimension which of being with the difficult, which I've been interested in and have been doing some teaching on the last few years. And this is something that appears for some of us, and it's called the dark night of the soul. Let's, let's bring the next slide on. It comes from St. John of the Cross, who's from lived in Spain, very interesting person. You know, when people have studied his background, he uh, has in his background uh, Muslim ancestry, uh, pro probably from North Africa, also Jewish ancestry. And he was a person who uh, was along, next slide, with um, Teresa of Avila. They were people who at that time were trying to bring the contemplative life back to its deeper roots in, you know, especially what happened in the first few centuries of the common era. They had a lot of opposition from the orthodoxy and uh, John was actually locked up in a monastery dungeon. He was kidnapped and locked up in a dungeon. Next slide. This is, I don't know if you can see so well, this is a painting of the mon monastery. He was held as a captive. This is when he wrote his famous text and developed his famous uh, notion of the dark night of the soul. Very, very beautiful uh, notion. And what he said that was very, very interesting is that the, the dark night is actually something that only occurs when people have been practicing for a while. It's actually a more advanced challenge, a more advanced difficulty. It can be a time when our meditation loses its juice or something lacks its meaning. We typically have a lot of experience when the teachings aren't there. And uh, St. John said that it's a time when we may be very... Uh, feel very off our center, disoriented, but it's very important to stay with the process. You know, there's a, a contemporary author uh, named uh, Mirabai Starr has written very beautifully. Let's use the next slide. Uh, some, some of you may know uh, Mirabai Starr. She uh, was actually, is the most recent translator of St. John. And I, I did a beautiful a seminar with her once on, on the dark night. And she experienced her own dark night when her daughter died in an automobile accident. And she went through a profound period of disorientation. Sometimes the dark night can be triggered by a recurrence of trauma or uh, some major loss. And 
yet she stayed with it. This is what she said, with reticence at first and then courage, I dared to grieve my child. I practiced turning towards a feeling that I did not think I could survive. Abiding with what is, I sat with that. I did this as an act of devotion for my daughter, saying yes to the mystery, expressing my ongoing love for her. Showing up for a devastating loss was an act of love. It wasn't trying to be spiritual. I knew that it was all about love. It was all that I could do. So this is really pointing ahead. We can see how even with the difficulties, there can be fruits. So a third sense of, the, of going into the darkness is going into not knowing. Again, related to what Mirabai Starr just said, but it can be, there can be a sense of not knowing what's occurring. And this may be true for many of us in terms of maybe some unresolved uh, issue in our lives. We may find our minds going back and forth to how can I resolve this issue? How can I deal with that? My suggestion is going to be that you keep noticing that and keep coming back to the present. What you might do is towards the end of the retreat, maybe the last morning, keep some time and see if you can come from a place of greater stillness and quiet and ask yourself how you might approach this unresolved issue. But my suggestion is going to be that you don't keep following the idea of how to deal with something, that you stay with the discipline of your practice, and you tell yourself, this is very important, and I'm going to give time at the end of the retreat to see what my more quiet, more intuitive mind tells me. That's an invitation. So we practice with the unknown. We stay, with, we stay with a quality of listening. You know, I don't know if you can see right behind me. We can go with the next slide. There's an image of uh, the great Tibetan yogi, Milarepa, who, who has his hand cupped to his ear, listening to experience. And the next slide shows Kuan Yin, really the meaning of her name, she who listens to the cries of the world. So this quality of listening and being present, very, very crucial. Can we stay with the unknown and be present to just to whatever is happening? Dropping our stories, being open to the mystery. One practice which I've sometimes done, at the beginning of every sitting I say, let me be with the mystery, particularly when my mind is going back to something very habitual. Can I be with the mystery? Can I just be with whatever is going to show up right now? That's at the heart of our practice. Not knowing, you know, what's going to be there. Can we have, can we have patience with that? Can we, can we be with what's, 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 with what's there? You know, uh, once uh, Diana Winston and I 
were teaching. We had a we had a, a principle that we used in our teaching called not knowing. And Diana worked with a bunch of teenagers, and they said you have to fill that out. Not knowing is pretty nice. That's good, but make it not knowing but keeping going. That's I, I really we we appreciated that addition. So we could say not knowing, but keep going. Not let the uh, lack of knowing get in the way or or be a problem or or make it harder. And so this is something so crucial to give time in our lives for not knowing. You know, I, again, I've studied the lives of people like Gandhi, Dorothy Day, and King. When, when Gandhi returned to India, he said, I only want to listen. He didn't start a new program. He said, I'm going to take a year traveling around India. He said, I want to keep my ears open and my mouth shut and just hear what people have to say. That quality, that quality of listening, the quality of, of being present. And it's also very much a theme in The Dark Night. Uh, John talked about how there, in the dark night of the soul, there is a radical unknowing. You know, there's a radical sense of not knowing what's going to occur, letting whatever occurs occur. He said, uh, this is from his writings, he said in Christian language, the soul walks to God through human unknowing. And it's something that we need so much, people in our time who can be with the unknowing, be with the difficulty, be with the mystery. You know, it can be, maybe some of us work in hospice, can be with the mystery of, of dying, can be with the mystery of what's occurring right now. We don't know. You know, can be with the mystery of our being, can open up to what we sometimes call our shadow material, that which is beneath the surface. That's part of this opening to uh, unknowing. Can we open to parts of ourselves which we may not fully want to be with? For some of us, it can be our anger or our, our sexuality or something about our experience. Can we open to what we might call the collective shadow, all that which the society doesn't want to look at? You know, whatever the, the uh, climate crisis or the racism, the all the different material that is that has been uh, not looked at clearly you know for many many centuries many many centuries and so our meditation practice is a way that we work with what we call the shadow we can open up to it we can see more clearly we can be with it and so the fourth way of opening to the darkness is to be with the darkness as generative and fertile. Something new comes out, much as uh, something new comes out of the earth. And so this is related to having more and more of that sense of faith and trust with the process, that there, that, you know, it's really trusting that the depth of our being, the depths of our being are good. 
They're connected with our love, with our care, with our wisdom, with our kindness, with our compassion. And so can we be with it? And at a certain point we start seeing that the difficulties can be generative. That sometimes when we're not knowing, something beautiful comes out of it. You know, I'm think, I think of my, my father, who was blind the last uh, 35 years of his life. And out of that blindness, I found, I think the family found that there was something uh, very beautiful in the heart that came out. You know, that uh, the, the challenge, the difficulty for him, the blindness led to, I think, um, considerable heart opening, really to, to find that. Um, we open to what's difficult and what's, what we don't know, and we find something uh, wonderful. Uh, Rilke has a wonderful line which he says, I believe in the night. There's a, a poem by Rumi. We can, next slide. Where he says, some nights stay up until dawn, as the moon sometimes does for the sun. Be a full bucket pulled up the dark way of a well, then lifted out into the light. And so again, those who can be with the darkness may find something comes as a gift, something, something quite beautiful. I think this is true both of the individual difficulty, the individual darkness, as it were, the individual unknowing, but also of the collective nature. There's a passage from uh, the spiritual activist Valerie Carr that I like very much. This is, she said, this is in terms of the collective challenge, breath, labor, push. What if this darkness is not the darkness of the tomb, but the darkness of the womb? What if our America is not dead, but a country waiting to be born? What if the story of America is one long labor? What if all of our grandfathers and grandmothers are standing beside us now, those who survived occupation and genocide, slavery and Jim Crow? detentions and political assault? What if they are whispering in our ear tonight, you are brave? What if this is our great, our nation's great transition, breath, labor, push? And I was thinking of this also in terms of, you know, how the darkness is generative. Uh, in terms of the life, some of you know of Greta Thunberg. We can go to the next slide. You know, that she... Many of you know she first heard about uh, climate issues when she was nine years old. And she said, I started reading about the climate crisis when I was maybe nine years old in school. My teachers, they told me about it. I became very depressed. I fell into depression. I mean, I, I, didn't, I didn't think it was. I was so depressed. I didn't see any point of living because everything was just so wrong. And she stopped eating, stopped talking, and fell out of school and stayed at home for almost a year. And then I think most of us know that after 
a few years, something came of this. It was something was generative. And here is her sitting, I think, in front of the uh, parliament building in Sweden, having a school strike for the climate. And then within, uh, within a few years, next slide, something was occurring of a massive nature. Something generative had come out of this very difficult time, time even of depression. Next slide. And she addressed the UN in 2018. This year, the year 2078, I will celebrate my 75th birthday. If I have children, maybe they will spend the day with me. Maybe they will ask about you, speaking to the people at the UN. Maybe they'll ask why you didn't do anything while there was still time to act. You say you love your children above all else, and yet you were stealing their future in front of their very eyes until you start focusing on what needs to be done rather than what is politically possible. There is no hope. We cannot solve a crisis without treating it as a crisis. We need to keep the fossil fuels in the ground and we need to focus on equity. And if solutions within the system are so impossible to find, then maybe we should change the system itself. So again, an example of something incredibly generative coming out. The next slide. Again, talking again to the UN. And so this is again, um, this is what the darkness brings as well, something generative, fertile. And then the last aspect of the darkness is the darkness is luminous. Out of the stopping, being with the difficulties, the darkness is generative and ultimately luminous. Next, next slide, this is, these are some poems from Rilke, from some of his poems. One moment your life is a stone in you and the next a star. He said, I love the dark hours of my being. My mind deepens into them. There I can find, as in old letters, the days of my life already lived and held like a legend and understood. Then the knowing comes. I can open to another life that's wide and timeless. So something else, something else comes. The next slide is from, I think, Hafez, one more poem from the Sufi teacher. Uh, Hafez, he says, I wish I could show you when you were lonely or in the darkness, the astonishing light of your own being. I wish I could show you when you were lonely or in the darkness, the astonishing light of your own being. And so as we're more with the darkness, we'll notice at times that the light comes, that there can be insight or a sense of purification, you know, or uh, John, 
you know, in the text on the dark night says, How well I know the fountain that streams and flows, though it is night. There the eternal fountain is hidden. How well I know where she has her dwelling, though it is night. And in the text, he talks about how the dark light transcends all thought. And this is something that we, we find also in the Buddhist tradition, where we have that sense of the depths of our being being luminous. The, depth of our, the depths of our being have a quality uh, of light. He said, the mind is originally radiant and clear. But because passing corruptions and defilements come and obscure, it doesn't show its radiance. From the Thai forest tradition, Achan Man, he talks about the core of our mind being radiant and clear, but it gets covered over. From the Tibetan tradition, Dogo Kense Rinpoche says that the core of wisdom is like a self-existing lamp. And so we may see how in these different ways we need to uh, stop in order to move forward, so to speak. We have to be with difficulties so that we can have a skillful response and not be trapped by our reactivity. We learn how to open to unknowing, not knowing, and ultimately knowing comes. We open to the dark and we find that it's ultimately generative and that it's ultimately, it ultimately brings light. So I would say just in closing that those of us who can be with the darkness, individual and collective in these times, who can work with these ways of being with the dark are deeply, deeply needed by our world. That to be able to work, practice in these different ways with what's difficult, times when we don't know, times when things seem to stop, whether that's on an individual basis or on a collective basis, those who can be with the dark in these ways are desperately needed, deeply needed by our world. And so this is really part of my hope for our practice and part of my love of doing a, a retreat at this time that we can really emphasize these themes of darkness and light. So I want to finish with a poem by uh, Pablo Neruda. It's about darkness and light. If each day falls inside each night, there exists a well where clarity is imprisoned. We need to sit on the rim of the well of darkness and fish for fallen light with patience. We need to sit on the rim of the well of darkness and fish for fallen light with patience.
Let's just take a moment now to sit and let whatever may have been helpful from the talk or from what occurred to you during the talk, maybe some unrelated insight came. Just take about a minute just to sit quietly and see what was helpful or important. So we have now a period of what we call home practice, about an hour and a half. We'll come back at 7 p.m. Eastern. There'll be a period of loving kindness or meta practice. We'll give some instructions. We'll have a period of loving kindness practice then. And so for the next period, we want to say that what we mean by home practice, for some of us, it might be formal meditation, sitting and walking. For some of us, it might be a mealtime. For some of us, it might be attending to something around the house, you know, maybe helping a child with homework. But our invitation is whatever you do during the times of home practice, may you do so in the spirit of practice. So let me invite you right now just to set an intention. Ask yourself what's there for you for the next hour and a half. And how might I bring a sense of practice to this next hour and a half? Take about 30 seconds right now. So thank you everyone for your kind attention. Uh, I'll I'll do my what's become my farewell Zoom farewell. Bye bye. See you. See you in uh, an hour and a half. Thank you for your kind attention for during the talk.